1: Hello, and welcome to Loose Units Origins. I'm Paul Verhoeven, that's John Verhoeven, and this week we are talking about pretty much the end of the book. Now, Dad, at this point in your career, I think it's time to talk about the fact that you basically stopped doing general duties and you pivoted into forensics, but I really want to dig into, you know, why you made that choice, uh, about the offer that you got that you almost took, and, you know, what it's like to kind of transition between two different departments in the uh, police
2: force. I thought it was a bit of a treat, for everybody because we're going to talk about my my good friend aren't we
1: Yes we're going to talk about yeah we're going to talk about Julian a fair bit yes
2: mm. yeah How would it be if I actually used or pretended his name was something else Yeah we can't
1: use his real name unfortunately because uh, one of the things Penguin said was basically it's really smart to avoid using the names of people who you know you you paint in a kind of more nuanced light I mean mm. a good example is Len Beter we had to change
2: his name Mm. To the point where I've, I've actually forgotten his real name. Do you, has that happened to you at all? No, I remember all their names. <laughs> okay. The, the difficulty I have is not using their real name. Yes, and there's, <laughs> yeah, there's been a few points where, uh, yeah, yeah, it's gotten a bit fiddly at times. Mm. but Yeah. yeah. So, um, Julian and I, we... I mean, everyone knows the story and the evolution of our friendship. Mm. Um, and we'd both decided unanimously, that neither of us were going to become detectives. Although, Paul and listeners, I've been giving this whole thing a lot of thought of late. And I think, even though it's silly to say this, but you know when people say, if you had your time again... Yes. What would you do?
1: Yes, a very very common hypothetical, especially nowadays when people are kind of, you know, sitting around thinking a lot. Mm. Yeah.
2: So, Paul... If I had my time again, I would not have joined forensics. I would not have gone into the central fingerprint bureau. I would have definitely become a detective. Jesus Christ. Um, which makes something of, as... that that's something of a bombshell, honestly. Mm. No, it is. Um the, I mean, it's a hypothetical bombshell.
1: Yeah, yeah. But everyone knows what the detectives were like in the eighties. I mean, mm. we all, you know, we all know about Roger Rogerson, about the corruption, about the you know, King's Cross, and you've painted a less than flattering picture of them.
2: Yeah, but obviously there were good detectives as well. That's obvious. Why is it obvious? Because you can't have an organisation that's absolutely every person's rotten. Uh,
1: you can be pretty close. I guess people are, cu- people are probably curious as to the, like, the ratio of good to bad. And oh, that's, this- a great,
2: yeah, good, that's a great um, point to make. Right. But let's take um, the soldiers uh, with the SAS that have committed some atrocities in Afghanistan, Paul. I mean, it's a tiny group, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. So, you know... There are obviously very good people within these organizations. So I like to think that I would have been one of those. But when you were... I mean, they say
1: absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that's one of the kind of, you know, the core problems with this is that the detectives had complete control over the power structures and they had their hands in other people's pockets and they were getting kickbacks and they were, you know, like they were living basically a consequence-free environment, right? Mm-hmm. I think my problem with going, I would go in and kind of be better is that, you know, how would your kind of morals and your standards survive and withstand that kind of pressure, you know? Because it Mm. seems like, obviously, there's lots of people who join these positions to become, you know, good versions of the thing which has been perverted, but you know how you watch politicians and you go, oh, good, we've got like a kind of young principal politician. By the time they get to the point where they've actually got power, they've been so warped by the system they're in that they're effectively useless. So, mm. um, mm. and yeah. I know that you, you you often espouse the merits of going, all right, I you know, if I'd said something, I couldn't have changed it from the inside, but you didn't change it from the inside. So I, I'm just curious as to whether if you went back, you would, you think you could have done things in a way that would reform. I mean, how do you reform a system from the inside? Well, I guess, that's like not step. that's
2: not why I would would have gone back, right? And I certainly wouldn't have joined and become a detective to reform it. I mean, that's just a. I was very young, yeah, but I was very good at what I did in terms of the arrests that Julian and I got that were quite extraordinary. Looking back, some of the, you know, we were we were arresting people and charging people with with complex. Um, you know crimes yeah um well like the jewelry the case of
1: the cardigan and the jewelry penis right like that's a that's a very it's a basically a piece of detective work that you pulled off mm, you know mm.
2: and we and and the time i went into the cells uh, which was insane irresponsible but got a very good result yeah um you know thinking outside the square and to me that's that's really good good policing and another very good friend of ours went on to become um, an undercover police officer and he worked for. You know the Crime Commission, and he got involved in some absolutely scary, horrific, mind-blowing, dangerous, cutting-edge, creepy stuff. Right. Uh, he he loved it, and I and I'd, I'd left the police force when he got involved in that, and he used to regale stories to me on the QT. Obviously, he couldn't tell me everything, but there was a lot of trust involved, mm. and I, I'd be sitting there just riveted. And you and you know who I'm talking about. Do I? Um, Bloody oath, I used to come to dinner regularly at our place. Huh. Um, but, you know, I'd be... I, I used to... Oh, God. You know you know, I suffered terrible withdrawal symptoms after I left the New South Wales Police Force. Um, no,
1: you've never told me this. Oh,
2: shocking. I, I just... Every time a police car went by or I heard a siren, I'd just go... Oh, I just... You know, my shoulders would drop and... I genuinely had a, a love of the police force, but I just thought it was a big thing to leave. Um, And I kind of, for for some years, definitely regretted and definitely considered going back into the police force. Um, But, you know, that that didn't happen. And then I watched friends sort of go through the ranks. Um, And I guess... What I would like to have done, and remember, I'm speaking to you and the listeners from where I am now, mm. and I'm, golly, Paul, I'm almost 40 years older, so lots of things have happened between then and now, and maybe I'm romanticizing. Maybe your books have helped resurrect the feelings of, you know, all, all the, let's face it, it was a really exciting time. Mm. Um I know that I got to experience a lot more than a lot of my colleagues because I used to be I just used to get involved in stuff um, you know I remember Julian and Dave they were involved in the the genesis of the tactical response group and I, I kind of thought it would be okay I like the sort of the physical side of things training with the SAS commandos in Mossman um you know i got i was privy to some of the the films that i because they used to film everything they did like they'd go to long bay jail and they'd do some pretty scary stuff and that kind of you know i thought yeah that'd be cool but wasn't really for me but both dave and julian went on to become detectives and then because it's a sort of a being a detective in any police force it's there's a fair degree of status um, it's something that not everyone can do, um, and a good detective. And there've been some great detectives over the years, and some of them have been incredibly scrupulously honest. Some of them uh, are notoriously honest, and they made it made it through, and they made a difference. And I like the the whole concept of of detective work. I know that it's it's not always glamorous. Um, And I guess looking back on how I feel and what you and I have lived through over the last few years with the books and the podcasts and the live shows, if I was to hand on heart sit here with you, which I am doing, and say, Paul, my dream job in the New South Wales Police Force as a detective would have been to have ended up in the cold case division. I think that would be the ultimate.
1: Why? Why would you like to be there?
2: Because you basically go in where others have, I won't say, failed. Given up, maybe, or had yeah, to. Or have had to, made... you know, yeah, just yeah. through work constraints, um, through other things, piling up. And Because that's the thing about police work. You never, ever get on top of things. Mm. You are continually inundated with just stuff. And... But imagine being with a with a group of highly skilled, determined, dogged investigators, and you are presented with cases that are unsolved, and and they've gone cold. Hence the term "cold case." And then you resurrect these these terrible, generally generally terrible things. Generally, murders.
1: Is there a statute of limitations on this? Like, if you solve a cold so um, you can you can dig up a like a cold case like a murder case yeah. 50
2: years after the fact oh, and, and then still still press charges yeah still i mean there are people that come in in fact in sydney 2 weeks ago a guy just walked into a police station and confessed to a crime that he'd committed more than 40 years ago he just walked in it it does happen where people just all of a sudden they go i just can't I can't live with myself. Imagine waking up every single morning knowing you'd committed some atrocious crime. Yeah. And But imagine all the people that go to their graves and, um, and no one ever gets to find out. It's um, So I think the cold case would be absolutely fascinating. And I think you've really got to to do that sort of work. You've got to absolutely immerse yourself, which I love doing. mm and I think you and I, that's where you would be very, very successful because of your ability to use pinpoint focus on a particular, you know, particular issue. And, and I think that's great. And that's one of the attributes. Um, so you didn't want to reform, you know, you didn't, I mean, you've
1: mentioned a few times that, you know, if you had have blown the whistle on whatever or you have, you know, spoken up, you wouldn't have been able to kind of, you know, change things. And uh, you've said now that you didn't, you know, you didn't want to join so that you could reform it. So, why did you want to be a detective? What was it about? And you've, you
2: keep saying a good detective. So, what makes a good detective? And why did you want to be a detective? Okay. Well, um, I worked with General Judy's police at North Sydney, mm. and some of the police officers that I worked with, in my opinion, yeah. were incompetent. They were not good police officers. In fact, some of them were. God, they were just. I won't say dumb, but they were—they um, were certainly not smart. Okay. And they, years later, I remember one guy in particular. He was just—he was just—I I can't even—I'm not going to use all the terms that I'd like to use to describe this particular person. He wasn't a bad person, mm. but he was just not bright. Right. And he became a detective. And I just thought, are you joking? I mean, we're talking—I I can't even. I can't muster the the feelings and the words to describe some of the people that became detectives. I don't know whether they were desperate, whether they were scraping the barrel. I just, or maybe these people were just had incredible determination. But uh, it was, I was some of the people that became detectives that I know. Um, I remember at the time being embarrassed, and I remember Julian and I who were in uniform. Some of these detectives would actually look down. At us, but we were getting more arrests, bigger arrests, more complex arrests, hence being invited to become, you know, detectives yeah. to go into the training uh, thing. But th- we all know there was that particular event where the detectives, well, stole some of the stuff. I uh, went in to see the boss naively, the head of detectives. I mean, how naive was that? Can you believe a young police officer in uniform going in and saying, "You know, hey, what's what's going on?" and and then I just made a decision. But I'm not saying that was the right decision to make because. Um, and so, what decision? The decision not to become a detective? Yeah, yeah. Right. I, imagine if I had of. Yeah. Um, Completely and I was. Life. Yeah. I always liked the idea of wearing a suit. I know that might come as a shock to you, Paul, because you know that I don't like suits nowadays. But at the time, you know, the thought of wearing, just being in plain clothes, having a concealed firearm, you know, sort of getting around in unmarked cars, my feeling also is that I also would have really loved undercover work. And right. I'm, not, I'm not just talking, um, you know, your, your bog standard undercover. I'm talking right. deep cover where I would love to have infiltrated um, all types of groups. Which is really fascinating, but that's how, you know, I do like to sort of live a bit sort of definitely on the edge. But then I don't think I could have done that or it would have been very difficult being married with children. Doing undercover work. Yeah, of course. But I yeah. mean,
1: I've, nev- I've never seen you act before. I've never seen you put on a voice, like put on a character, act out of character ever. So I'm curious as to how you would fare if you had to assume a character and whether you would get lost in that persona.
2: Hmm. Well, it does happen. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting point to make. I, look, it's all hypothetical, isn't it? Of course, it's, yeah. it's a little bit exciting to think about it. But I think it's fair to say, Paul, that maybe for those that haven't read the second book, I think you've really you've done some amazing things with my character, and you've you've sort of stretched the the reality to a degree and taken me to some places that. Perhaps you feel that I, you know, would like to have gone. Oh, I basically tried to go, what would you be like if you had become a detective? Um, Because
1: the version of you in forensics was, you know, just like you in forensics. I tried to turn you into a detective who worked in forensics, basically. I tried to Mm. imbue you with an almost Sherlock Holmes grade level of deductive genius. Mm. Frankly, because I'm a big fan of the genre and also because I thought it'd be fun to give you almost see what happened if you had done that, you know, Mm. kind of explore that what if. Mm. I'm really curious, you said something before, and I I think the listeners will want us to kind of double back and check on this. You mentioned that you had withdrawals whenever you heard sirens. Mm, I did. Um, That's new information. And it's interesting given that we basically pinpointed the fact that you had uh, a PTSD-based event. When you cut, when your friend cut his lip open, and you had to drive him to the um, to the hospital, mm. and you you had a full blown panic attack. Mm. How do you kind of marry those two things together? The fact that you had ongoing trauma because of the horrors that you'd seen, and you know, uh, but ba- what I would basically call FOMO, like the, the fear of missing out, the, the thing. That kind of t- that pull you get when you see someone doing the thing that you used to do and that you love doing and you can't do anymore. How do you kind of
2: um, reconcile those two opposing things? Mm. Well, I could have... You said that I couldn't do anymore, but I actually could have, you know. Um, look, when I went into the work cover authority, I was kind of going into a, kind of a, a, a sort of a similar role in that I was investigating industrial accidents, mm-hmm. which I found, you know, really interesting. Um, and then I kind of, I did that for a few years, you know, and then I sort of missed the emergency services, and Christine was always very, very positive um positive and encouraging, and she suggested that, you know, she said, look, what's wrong with joining rejoining the police force? Mm. But one of the reasons, Paul, that I didn't do that is that I had this sort of a bit of a sad feeling, and that was, and I guess slightly ego-driven, I guess the one reason that I never rejoined the New South Wales Police Force is that I just could not stand the thought of coming back and being junior to all my colleagues that i would worked with. In other words, having witnessed police officers that were at the same rank as me when I left, imagine they would have gone through the ranks some of them would have become had been sergeants, rightly or wrongly. And then I would have come back as a probationary constable, and I right. just kind of—it's weird to think—but that was one of the main reasons that I didn't rejoin. The thought of being junior again, and I didn't know how I'd handle being junior to people that I felt, you know, it's—I know it's a bit of a weird thing to say, but I, I guess I. Uh, I just I just couldn't stand the thought of it so then what I did of course I tried to then rationalize me not rejoining by looking at all the negative things right um, and sort of weighing up whether I really really wanted to get back into it so I'd see police sort of on the beat or you know going to domestics and I started to think about all the you know and and the paperwork mm. and and the shitty tin pot accidents you'd go to and and going to you know, terrible things at two in the morning in the rain which is weird because I ended up joining the fire brigade where I sort of did all that stuff but you know I was almost 30 when I joined the fire brigade and because I'd been in the police force it was pretty easy for me at the academy with the fire brigade because I was quite mature and the instructors really cut me a lot of slack because they really liked the fact that
0: For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals
0: like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
2: And it made my, my time at the academy bearing in mind. there are only 10 in the class. but um, yeah, I, I kind of I had a bit of a bit of a good run, and I had a different outlook on life. and you know, I look, I look at police now. Um, in Sydney, particularly where we live, which is a pretty interesting area, and, yeah. and and when we go to Melbourne, I see the police down there, and I kind of now think to myself, um, you know, I'm really really glad I did it. Um, but again, we've just we've come full circle, Paul, because it's it's entirely hypothetical. Mm. Um, it's like when you occasionally, and we all do it. I imagine we all do it. Where we imagine, golly, what would happen if I won the lottery? And you start. I'll tell you what happened a few days ago. I got a message from the lottery, and it said that I'd won. In you know how they have got that twenty thousand dollars a month lottery? Do you have that down there in Melbourne? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not Okay, a so again, yeah. they give you twenty thousand dollars a month for ten years, which is incredibly exciting. And every time I've ever won it, I, I won. <laughs> I mean, I I win between five and ten dollars, and I get excited, and of course right. I reinvest it. Um, but a few mornings ago, I woke up and I was, I mean, I'm delirious when I wake up. And I looked, and I'm trying to interpret, but they didn't tell me what. They just said you've won, but no amount, and it says something like you'll be contacted or something or other. And I just, I this wave of excitement. I was so excited. That I could, I think I was hyperventilating. Right, and I went into the bathroom, and I, and I just, you know, I'm getting ready to go for my run, and I'd already created this incredible scenario of what I was going to do with this money, and of course that wasn't the case. But you'd literally budgeted with your. I'd, I'd gone, yep. I'd, I'd, I'd given you and Tegan money. You'd be pleased to know. <laughs> um, I, I just, it was, and I was so excited, and my excitement it sort of flowed over to Christine and she Mm. started to get a little bit excited and it was just, it was so intense. I convinced myself. So that's talking about how things in your mind, you can sort of romanticize and dream and imagine. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's quite healthy. Um, but then to come back to, to reality, not with a, with a thump, but gradually let yourself down and sort of take stock and, uh, Dad, I think it's time to kind of
1: loop back to another point, and that is something we were going to address at the start of the episode, and that is what happened to Julian? Well, you mean in his life or...? After the police force. Oh, no, sorry. No, I mean after you
2: accepted the offer from forensics. Okay, well, um, yeah, Julian went on to become a detective, which caught me by surprise. He actually told me the day that... We, you recall, of course, the witch story, mm. and we'd gone through that trauma. We'd been with her father, ex police officer. Mm-hmm. We'd gone out into the into the car park. We'd located the car, which proved beyond a reasonable doubt that she'd actually managed to drive herself to the hospital, which was staggering. And we're standing out in the car park and Julian just basically, it was weird. It was one of those weird moments where we just stood there, and he then looked at me and said, John, I've, uh, I've accepted the invitation to become a detective, and he could have basically just punched me in the gut. You'd both agreed not to do it. That's right. We we were the best of friends. We We used to have him, as you know, he was basically like, a member of our family. I do remember that. Yes, and, well, he was
1: he was referred to by me as as you know uncle. So. Yeah,
2: and he, you know, he loved you kids, mm. and and we all loved him. And you know, things happen in life. He, um, I'm not going to go into all the personal aspects of his life about mm. how and why he changed, but I was I was kind of really upset, um, and maybe a part of me thought golly, um, maybe maybe he's doing the right thing. Maybe I should... Because I know we always dreamt about, you know, being sort of partners in, you know, no matter where we went and we would have made an awesome, totally incredible... And he was, might I say at this point, he was incredibly honest. Right. And he managed to go through the New South Wales Police Force as a very, very good detective and I'll bet you that he never took one cent as, as some of my good friends that were detectives um, were, were scrupulously honest mm-hmm. and others of them went to jail. So, you know, I could well have been one of the honest detectives. We'll never get to know. Um, temptation is a, it's a, mighty powerful thing yeah um, I can't hypothesize I'm not going to sit here and say to you and the listeners I would never have taken a quid uh, I can say I never did but who's who's to know yeah. you just can't you can't imagine um, you know th- these are these are big things but but Julian was was hundred percent honest. Um, But, you know, our friendship sort of basically, yeah, just all basically, it was sad, it was tough, um, but it just sort of turned to nothing really. And, um, yeah. Is that because because you're working in different departments? No, no, no. That's more sort of, you know, his personal life, things changed. And people, things change in life. I mean, I don't, I mean, do you have many friends that you had... Like when you were ten, or <laughs> um, no, it's tricky. I was
1: best friends for many, many, many years uh, with a guy called Anthony, and you remember Anthony? Yeah, we, gr- we yeah. grew up together, and we yeah. were inseparable, and mm. we were friends through uh, primary school. And then you guys sent me to Saint Kieran's for a year, and we kind of, you know, you know, we tried to stay in touch. And then I went to St. Paul's and he was there as well. And then we were friends again. And then he went to Riverview for years at 10 and 12 and we drifted apart a bit. And then at university, I had this weird dream. I was talking to mom about this. I said, I had this dream. I kind of was hanging out with Anthony again. And she was like, well, it's probably a sign. You probably should call him. So I called him and it was like no time had passed. It was amazing. And then we were, you know, friends again for years and years. And then I moved to Melbourne and that really kind of put a, you know, put a kind of, um, like a broom in the spokes a bit because, you know, he got married and had kids and I live in Melbourne and it's just occasionally we, you know, chat online or, you know, play games online or whatever, but it's just, it's, I feel like sometimes there are things that, look, by the same token, I think there are friendships where you should not have to spend all the time in the world together to stay friends. Hmm. The, I think a good friendship should mean that you could, because of life, life circumstances, you know, drift apart for, 10 years if you have to get back together and it should be like no time has passed at all. I mean, mm. there, are, there are certain friendships like that, but it sounds like um, the, the one thing that will kind of drive a wedge is an ideological difference, right? Mm. That kind of thing can really... I've seen friendships fall apart and be severed deliberately because of mm. major ideological differences. And it sounds like you and Julian had a kind of like, you know, like a, like a pact, right? You'd agreed that you wouldn't do it. So... Mm. Did it feel like a slight betrayal when he said he would or he had?
2: Oh, yeah. Look, I was, um, I was, look, God, it really, it shook me. Mm. Um, but, 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 you know, also you can't, it's not fair to, you know, put your own sort of feelings and emotions. I mean, you can be affected, but you shouldn't use them to try and affect the other person, mm. you know, so people need to, um, you know, figure things out for themselves. But what I will say, which might come as a little bit of a... um, without saying too much, as a generalisation, what I will put out to all the listeners and you, Paul, is that sometimes in life when you've got a great friend, a great, great friend, and that friend uh, then gets involved in a relationship, um, sometimes and we've all experienced, as I imagine, that things change because you might not have the same feelings toward the partner. Yeah. And, And these things happen in life. And you can't, you know, you feel sad that your friendship's sort of waning, but then you think, hang on a sec, the most important thing in this case in Julian's life is his partner. Yeah, of course. And then I can't be all sort of... I can be upset, but that's as far as it can go. Yeah, because the most important thing is everyone's happiness and their relationships. Uh, absolutely, and that—that's just one of the facts of life. And and there are so many cases where people have felt, you know, abandoned or sort of left out or just forgotten or neglected. But then, hang on, you know, let's just get things back into perspective. Mm. And it's very difficult in in relationships. To sort of, you know, maintain that that wonderful. You know, it does happen, of course, where people remain lifelong friends. Um, but as I get older, I'm kind of I have other priorities now. Um, but I often think about Julian, and I would love if, if he called me one day and just said, "Look, John, let's meet up." I'd be I'd be stoked. Yeah, I think it'd be bloody great. Um, How do you think you feel about the about the book? How would he feel about it?
1: Yeah, how do you think he'd feel about the book?
2: Um yeah, I think he'd I think he'd love it. I've never met anyone that hasn't loved it. <laughs> but I mean, he's in, like he's in the book,
1: right? Mm. I mean, but he's portrayed in a very interesting way. Mm. I don't th- it's not a hit piece on him. It's just, you know, it's it I just find it interesting because I don't know. I I I really liked having him around. Yeah. And it, but it was always very confusing to me that he just kind of disappeared. Mm. Um, but that moment where he said yes to the offer of being a detective, why did you feel like that was you know why did that feel like a punch in the stomach like you said
2: um well, at the time because we'd we basically made a pact um that we'd never ever ever do it yeah ever yeah um so I guess I was but look he he he, he had to look at other things you know. Yeah. Um,
1: and you went into forensics. I mean, yeah. obviously, would, would you interact at all with you in forensics and him in... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh,
2: God, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd go back to North Sydney Detectives Office and, you know, I, I did a lot of work. And he'd be there and we'd be... We'd still be mates. We were still, you know, we used to socialize and... See, the, picture, was-
1: you, the picture you painted for me was that it was quite a, you know, like it, it almost severed the friendship. Is what you said.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it sort of, there was definitely, because I, I think partially that was me in my right. mind because I was kind of pissed off that I, I, you know what, I kind of almost looking back kind of probably may have wanted to have done what he did. I know that sounds, you know, bizarre, mm. um, but I kind of was a bit, I think I was jealous. And I needed to go off and find my own right. way. But I remember I used to go back to the detective's office and, and interact. And I... Look, you know, it, back in the 1980s to be a detective in Sydney was pretty cool. Pretty cool. And, and uh, it's something kind of, I never really got to do. Yeah, so
1: Yeah. So he did the thing that you wanted to do and you kind of maybe... It's interesting hearing this kind of version of events where rather than this deep betrayal, it's like he followed through with the thing. I mean, first of all, why didn't you say... Why didn't you Why didn't you revise your previous statement if you actually wanted to get in? Or was it more that you both agreed not to do it? You got an offer from forensics, you said yes, but he kind of piked and did the detective's thing and you're like, well, gosh, shit, I wish I'd done that. But by mm. that point, it was too late. Is
2: that what happened? Uh, it probably wasn't too late, Paul, but I did find forensics extraordinary yeah, and just absolutely mind-blowing. But I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to do forensics, I think. I'm, I'm I'm just speaking hypothetically here, but I just don't understand how you can see so much stuff. Uh, although having said that, I mean, let's look at nurses and doctors in ER. Yeah. I mean, a mate of mine that I used to dive with, um, a, a doctor, yeah. he lived for emergency medicine that's all he did for his entire career and he just said he loved it he just liked to be right on the edge um so i guess i'm the sort of person that likes to go through life like with a grab bag and i like to fill it with lots and lots of different experiences Mm. i'm very very much like that i could never have been for example uh as an example a school teacher started going through teachers college and taught till I was say sixty, I could not do it. I just couldn't. I just it, it. I even thinking about it, I just feel. I mean, that's the great thing about policing, um, and emergency services. Mm. You, and it's a cliche. I mean, I hear it all the time. But you know, I mean, yes, it's not all incredibly exciting. It's just that's not possible. But um, there's a variety of experiences and it's the unknown and it's the the ability and the it's the opportunity to help people which i think look even the worst detective the most crooked detective there was a time in their life when they would have aspired to do something actually if you if you sort of bury right down to the genesis of when they decided he or she to join a police force somewhere in the world i'm quite sure that it would be very difficult, I think, to find a person that didn't at least at some level have a desire to help people. Then is there not the common
1: thread there that the good people enter this job and get corrupted by it? I mean, but is that not...
2: I agree with you, but not all get corrupted.
1: No, no, I know. I'm not saying they do, but I find it interesting that the common factor in people who become bent cops is that they join the police force, right? I mean, and I think, I, I hope I hit it on the head before when I said that, you know, power corrupts. I mean, I don't think everyone is actually built to have power Mm. because Mm. it takes a certain type of person to actually handle that and not abuse that power, Mm. right? And I I think what I like about the forensics choice that you made is that it, it took you away from power. I mean, let's be honest. you got Sure, you got some small perks, right? But because you're not interfacing directly with, you know, always living people, you know, you're not... You are... I felt like you were that one step removed from that power structure that could have been abused, right? Whereas Julian was kind of running into it. And whilst I'm really happy that you said he was kind of, you know, on the straight and narrow, you don't actually know that, right? Like you you, you can't know exactly what he was doing all the time. You, you weren't his partner anymore, so you couldn't be around to keep an eye on him. It's entirely possible that he got into that gray area, right? I'm not saying he did, but I'm saying without you around as the kind of first person narrator, without you around as the guy, you know, who was there, You don't know. In fact, for all we know, because you weren't stationed on with them all the time. One of the great things we learned from Loose Units from the very beginning, God, this is season five, and one of the great things we learned almost immediately, Dad, and I urge listeners to go back and listen to those early episodes because holy shit, they sound so different. We've really evolved, but is that you don't, Get a partner in the traditional sense, in the TV movie sense, right? You are basically doing shift work. You are rostered on with people. There are people who probably knew a different Julian than you did, you know, Mm. Um, because you are a different person around other people. True. You you kind of bring different things to the table. Mm. You were different around Sue. You were different around Dunn. You were different around Len. And you're different at different times in your career, and on different nights, and like you know, you around mum when you guys were kind of courting early, early days in the police force. That was a different version of you than Julian knew. You know, you did reckless things around her that you wouldn't have done around Julian because you weren't trying to impress him or sleep with him, presumably. So it's, I'm just saying, it's entirely possible that you know, um, with the right people or wrong people around, you can end up a completely different. Uh, type of police officer right mm. Re- regardless of intentions and i think what we got in the end was sort of the best possible version of you because you know you ended up here so yeah no well interesting. yeah um that's all the time we have for this week's episode of loose units dad but i just i just wanted to say look last next week is the final episode of this season of loose units it has been a Absolutely gargantuan undertaking. And I will save all the kind of wrap ups and thank yous and acknowledgements for that episode uh, because there's a lot of stuff to get through in that final episode. But for now, uh, we just want to say thank you so much for reading along with the book Loose Units. And one thing we want to urge you to do, and we're really going to push this next week because we've got some really cool ideas. If you haven't, go back and listen to Loose Units, the podcast from the beginning. There is some stuff in there that will really help kind of round the story out and really help it make sense because the first season of loose units was actually about you know this time in dad's life so i think it's a really good time to go back and revisit next week we're going to kind of go through some stuff and talk about our favorite episodes and you know really do a kind of you know just a really big wrap up but we will be back on friday with loose ends we hope you have a fantastic week i hope you stay safe and uh we'll see you soon
0: bye everyone bye bye